0: I think that that is a big disincentive for survivors to come forward about their experiences of abuse because if they're like afraid that what is going to happen is that their loved one or like somebody who like continues to be a part of their life in some way is going to be like sent to prison and then like maybe they're going to be blamed by their community or their family. Um, there are just like a lot of negative consequences that can come from that. Um, and I think on the sort of flip side of that, there's also a reality that like these like car- the, the like carceral way that we handle harm in our communities isn't just like done through the state, but it's also like something that we do at an interpersonal level. So like sometimes a survivor might be afraid of coming forward about either intimate partner violence or sexual assault because she's afraid of the way that like a family member is going to respond, like, I don't want my, like, I don't want my dad to, like, show up at my abuser's house and, like, beat him up or, like, kill him. And, like, what are the consequences of that going to be? Um, and so I think that the way that we try to respond to harm with more violence oftentimes is really alienating for the survivor.
1: Salaam, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahim Khan, known online as The Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart, and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world, and therefore how we transform it. In this week's episode, I spoke to Kristen Cherry about the binary of victim and perpetrator. Kristen is a really good friend and we had a really great discussion. She's a survivor advocate and movement worker based in Louisville, Kentucky in the USA. And she's worked at her local domestic violence and sexual assault crisis center for two and a half years, counseling survivors in shelter, over the crisis line and through the court process after filing for civil protection orders. Kristen is currently involved in community organising efforts in Louisville as protests have continued following the police killing of Breonna Taylor earlier in 2020. That's included co-coordinating a protest arrest hotline for protesters who are facing charges, connecting them to free legal support. Kristen helped to interrogate both sides of this binary in a really nuanced way and I think this is a really important binary for everybody to engage with because whether or not we know it, we use it quite frequently in the ways that we categorise people when we think about interpersonal violence. So I hope you can take something from this episode and approach it with the nuance that we also tried to give it. Welcome to another episode of season two. Today I am sitting with Kristen Cherry, who is all the way in the US. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I am not bad, thank you. So We're doing quite an exciting and I think complex and nuanced binary today and I think in order for us to approach that correctly and in the way that we want to, because this is something we have spoken about for I would say almost like a year and a half, um, I think it's just useful for us to start by you situating yourself um, in this conversation, so maybe telling us a bit about the work that you've done previously um, and how you're kind of approaching this binary.
0: Sure. So um, until earlier this year, I had been working for about two and a half years um, as an advocate at my local domestic violence and sexual assault center. Um, so um, initially I was working on the crisis line and in shelter, um, which is like an emergency shelter for people who are fleeing uh, situations of domestic violence and sexual assault. And after working in that position, um, the most recent position I had there was primarily doing legal advocacy, which involved meeting with survivors at court um, when they were filing for protective orders um, against um, people in situations where they had either been sexually assaulted or primarily were trying to um, get out of a situation of intimate partner violence. So that's sort of the context that I'm coming from. And that work is very much like structured so that. We work pretty. We worked pretty much exclusively with survivors. Like um, that work doesn't really have any involvement in working with people on the other side of that relationship or um, like systems of harm.
1: Okay, okay. And then the work that you're doing now, I guess, is different to that.
0: Yeah. So right now, um, I am like in a lull of employment, <laughs> as are many people in the time of COVID. Um, but what that has ended up looking like for me because I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, We've been sort of in the midst of like a very live um, like movement for racial justice. Um, Breonna Taylor was murdered by police here earlier this year and there have been protests ongoing since about the end of May. Um, And so my involvement with that has primarily taken I've been taking the role of helping coordinate a protest arrest hotline um, to connect protesters who are arrested with free legal representation throughout their case. Um, But there's been a lot of like mutual aid efforts going on. Um, Yeah, just like (laughs) constant protests and a lot of demands for change. And um, that's kind of what I have been primarily involved in.
1: And I think that's a really, you know, both those contexts really frame this conversation, I feel, in a space that we want it to be in, you know, where we kind of simultaneously able to, you know, hold a a critique of like the current justice system as it stands and like understanding a lot of the flaws within that and at the same time, you know, the work that you've done with survivors of domestic violence and kind of centering survivors in this conversation. And I guess this leads quite nicely to introducing the binary. Today, what we're breaking down is the binary of victim and perpetrator. And so the context that you set up there, I guess, is the context we're primarily going to be focusing uh, this in. and it's something that we have wanted to do for a long time. Um, but at the same time, something we wanted to do with sensitivity and just awareness that like, this isn't something abstract, you know, this is like real people's lives. Um, and the ways that we talk about domestic violence, you know, it th- th- really affects people too. So, um, having said that, I guess to begin with, um, could you tell us a bit about how, you know, this binary itself, came to be something you recognized, uh, whether that was through the work that you were doing or, you know, where this language of victim and perpetrator um, even came from in the the space that you were in? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think it's something that I recognized like pretty early on, like in my training um, to become an advocate. And what I guess what was like most striking to me was the way that So we talk about survivors, right? And whenever we're talking about the person who's been abusing them or harming them or like causing violence to them, um, the language that is like very commonly used is referring to that person as a perpetrator or perp for short. Um, And so it was, I guess... Something that I think a lot of people in that field like really take for granted um, because it is so it's it's not a field that like in terms of like the nonprofit systems that assist survivors. It's like very much it's survivor focused to the extent that I think that it can contribute to the dehumanization of people who have caused harm. Honestly, like one of the first times that I really realized that was when I was talking to Daria about it, actually, who um, you did a great episode with in season one. Um, and she just coming from her background of um, working with people on death row and people who are being accused of crimes was like, oh, like you all use the language perpetrator. That's really interesting. That's very like legalistic language. Um And I feel like that was one of the first times that I was like, oh, this is like a word that is very similar to like criminal or convict or like other similar language that kind of like reduces people to a a, a moment or like a thing that they've done or like one role that they've played and doesn't like give more context for like how that harm actually happens in society and really like makes it into an individual problem when it's actually a systemic one.
1: Well, wow, that's, uh, yeah, that's so interesting because I feel like um, even just that notion that it's something really taken for granted and that even within, you know, this the sector, like this wasn't something that people would think about. And I mean, it makes sense, like for all the reasons you've outlined, like, you know, you're centering um, people who are, have experienced harm and you're not really going to be thinking about that in a big way. But I guess th- the point you raised there that actually if we are trying to think in like a bigger way, a broader way and think about justice in a more holistic sense, like is is that useful? And I think what you said about like dehumanization that occurs through this kind of labeling of, of people as perpetrators of violence is something that also echoes a lot of themes through, I guess, other episodes I've recorded with people. Um, and I'm really interested in maybe delving into that a bit more, like, so beyond just being like the, um, perpetrator of violence would you say there's like any is there like almost a caricature of like who this person is or like what they're what they're doing I'm assuming it's like often in most cases assumed to be like a man I guess like a male relative is that right
0: yeah I mean I think that definitely the most common dynamic that we would see play out would be like a man like whether that's like somebody's like husband or like the father of someone's child or um, their dating partner Um, being abusive toward a woman. That's certainly not, like, the only, uh, like, framework. Obviously, there's a lot of violence in queer relationships, too. Like, violence comes up uh, from women against men. Um, This is, like, something that crosses, like, so many racial, economic, any type of background you can think of. So it, it can look a lot of ways, but I do think that the sort of, like, classic image is like that is a man who is perpetrating the violence against a woman. And I think that part of the uh, way that this binary can like be reductive is that it also tends to make the the survivor the like, quote unquote, victim into this sort of like powerless person who like has no like agency in their life. Um, I think that like in the field of DV and SA advocacy. I do think that there have been a lot of strides in trying to humanize survivors and um, trying to like frame them within a broader context, like understanding that there is no like perfect victim of like you know somebody who's like never done anything wrong quote unquote wrong and like they have their own trauma history. Um, sometimes they like are also struggling with substance use. They like have other things going on in their lives besides like just being abused by a person Um, but I think that that humanity doesn't really make its way to perpetrators and I think in my experience it's less that there's like from, from like my perspective working in that field it's less that there's like a specific idea about who that person is so much as an idea that like they're not deserving of like consideration or like basically just we don't care about them. Like they deserve to rot and uh, like let let the system like take them. I, because I do think that it is a very carceral approach that people tend to take um, from this sort of like vengeful perspective of like that you've done a terrible thing and like therefore you deserve whatever happens to you.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I guess it, it does play so much, you know, on that binary of um, innocent and guilty as well that you mentioned and, and criminality. And it's kind of like because I guess there's also this conflict, right, of like, who is the right kind of victim. And I I, I mean, I imagine this is something that comes up as well, right, around kind of who is really believed to be a victim. And I don't mean like necessarily by the kind of organizations you worked for, which I assume kind of are much better at this, but I suppose in a wider context and and like of, of, you know, justice system more broadly, where it's kind of like, as what you said about like a victim needing to be somebody who almost is like lacking agency and kind of, you know, purely just on this oppositional side of the perpetrator, I guess it, you know, that also creates this situation where it's like you if you are, as you said, like if you're a victim and you also um I mean, say you had your own like um, criminal record or say you had like any kind of, I don't know, uh, any kind of other things that are stigmatized going on in your life, then I mean, I assume that that probably affects like the way that this is also played out in the sense of like whether you're then deemed to be quite as deserving a victim in the same way that we're talking about, like perpetrators.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that is definitely something that plays out, particularly when when the legal system does become involved, um, you know, like whether... The police are gonna like believe somebody or not is like contingent upon, you know, what their biases like when they show up on the scene. And like, if the person who's being harmed and abused in that moment is somebody who's like also clearly has used substances and like is high or intoxicated in that moment, um, they might not really take them seriously. Um, I think, you know, likewise in situations where, um, the police have been called to a situation, like whether the survivor has called or like a neighbor or whoever. Um, if the survivor is like really flustered and like not able to put a clear story together, which like makes sense because that's a trauma response, right? Like being like not able to like put things together in like a logical timeline. If they're, if the abusive person is able to like do that more successfully and uh, have a coherent story that like paints them as the person who was attacked first, um, maybe, maybe they have injuries that are more visible because like maybe they were being like super intimidating and like up in the person's face and the survivor like reached out and slapped them and they like have cuts on their face from their nails or something right like there are so many reasons that things can look differently when like the police show up there and they don't have a full picture of like the dynamics of the relationship and what led up to that moment. And at least the way it tends to work here is that if the police arrive to a domestic violence call and both people are present who were involved, they have to arrest somebody, like somebody's getting arrested. Um, And so sometimes in that moment, the survivor gets arrested, like that's a thing that happens, Or, or maybe the perpetrator flees and the police maybe like try briefly to find them and can't and then like that's it and then the perpetrator might come back and be even more escalated because the police have become involved and that's obviously like a threat to them.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's that's actually like raises so many interesting issues, I guess, already because I'm just thinking as well about I mean when you were talking about evidence, I guess there's a lot of parallels to at least here in the UK, like and this might sound like a convoluted parallel, but I think, you know, we know that like um people who are seeking refuge in the UK, like a lot of the times they'll have they'll have to kind of prove that like, you know, their life is in danger um, or like their human rights will be violated if they were to be sent back to where they came from. And a lot of times, like, you know, how do you produce evidence about things that, like you were saying, like you, you might not be able to present your story coherently because it's so traumatizing and you might not be able to, you know, you can't pull out like files and documents that like talk about, you know, the kinds of um, interpersonal and, and political traumas that you experienced. And then, in addition to that, I was just thinking about you know when you do have maybe undocumented people um, and like how then they if they're in a, a situation like this you know for them to call the police or for the for the state to get involved also risks you know as you said like th- they could be arrested they could be deported they could be detained like it's um, that thing again kind of like you don't really get to be a victim because you're also you know wrapped up with all these other kinds of legal battles yourself I guess with your identity.
0: Yeah, I think that that is actually a pretty apt parallel like between uh, somebody who might be like seeking refuge or asylum in another country um, and like what I would see even happen in like protective order court where like people are like put in this position of like, okay, if I like, I need this like specific form of legal protection to like feel safe. And to get that, I have to like prove to the state that I am a victim. Um, and that's, like, such a tough position for somebody to be in, especially someone who, like, doesn't know what the state is looking for, really. Um, and that was, like, part of what I would try to do is, like, help explain, like, these are, this this is, like, the law. <laughs> um, like, I couldn't give legal advice to people, but I could at least say, like, these are the types of things that they tend to, like, ask questions about and look for, look for in people's cases. People who have their own like whether they are undocumented or like if they have a warrant for their arrest for something unrelated like these are all things that play into whether someone feels safe to even seek out like protection in the first place or to call the police in a moment when they feel unsafe
1: yeah so it suddenly shows as well that you know i guess this this singular perpetrator and just dealing with them you know doesn't necessarily resolve all you know all of somebody's problems um And so I guess at this stage, you've made it quite clear already that lots is being hidden by this very simple approach to, you know, victim and perpetrator of violence. Um, As opposed to help us navigate through breaking this down uh, in a more kind of direct way, what would you say is the central issue with this assumption that victim and perpetrator are absolute opposites? Like, what's the thing that kind of just can help us trouble this really early on?
0: Yeah. I think that for me, the sort of like central issue with this framing is that it removes the broader context of like somebody's life and like what actually plays a role in harm occurring. Because I really, I think that like the criminal justice system in general and like people, the way that people often like talk about and think about violence is that it is this like innate propensity that people have that it's like, oh, they're just like a violent person. Um, when people who tend to perpetrate things like sexual assault and domestic violence, and this is not always the case, but like oftentimes have their own history of abuse. So I think that like one thing that shows this really well is the ACE study, which stands for adverse childhood experiences. Um, this is like a study that was done in the U S um, that it, it's basically like a list of 10 questions to sort of assess different types of trauma that someone experienced in their childhood. So it asks, like, did you ever see um, your parent, like, physically abused? Um, did you experience physical abuse? Like, were you neglected in these ways? Did you experience sexual assault as a child? Um, but it asks in a little bit um, more understandable terms. What's there substance use in the home? Did you have a parent in jail? questions like this, and it gives someone an outcome of like, however many you answer yes to is like your ACE score. So like, basically, the higher your ACE score, like the more types of trauma you were exposed to as a child, the higher risk you have for negative physical and mental health outcomes, and the higher risk you have for um, being either a victim or a perpetrator of violence. And I think that that, I, I say that like, with the caveat that, like, that doesn't mean that people who, like, experience uh, trauma in their childhood, like, are going to (laughs) become perpetrators of violence or are going to become victims, but just that, like, people come from those contexts. um, And while it never justifies abusive behavior, and, like, that behavior is still, like, the onus of the person who has done it, um, it matters why it happens. Um, And what led to that person causing that harm? Because if we don't talk about that, we're never going to solve these problems because they're not individual problems. They're systemic and societal problems. Um, And so I think that 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 helps us like get to the root of the issues, whereas like framing people as just like you're a bad person, you're a good person or like you are a perpetrator and you're a victim, then like we don't get to have that conversation.
1: No, for sure. I think that's that's you're right. That's like a super helpful way of thinking about this. And I think, um, you know, again, like this idea of innately violent people or people who are just more likely to perpetrate violence at some point in their lives is is something that we can see so many parallels to, whether that's kind of again, to give some UK examples, I guess, whether that's like this idea that, you know, young black men in London who listen to a particular type of music are more likely to be violent or that it's like um, Muslim people are more likely to commit acts of violence. I think we can see like so many flaws in that logic in other spaces that for me, you know, as soon as you explain that, it's like, I can completely see there must be something that's being hidden from this analysis. And I think as you've explained, it's a context, which if we paid attention would lead us to have to hold to account, you know, many other institutions, organizations, like societal structures that kind of actually contribute to, you know, this very interpersonal violence. But it's that context of violence really that it sounds like, you know, is is painting that fuller picture that actually because what 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 stood out to me was that you said, you know, these people who experienced, you know, multiple traumas are likely to be either like perpetrators or victims or both of violence. And I think that's so interesting that both of those things are so bound up together already. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think I, there. It's also like worth noting that like people who have like a higher A score or who like come from traumatized backgrounds, there's obviously like a higher concentration in communities of color and like poor communities, and those are also going to be the communities that are over overpoliced um, and overcriminalized, like from the get-go. Um, and so that also I think plays into like who gets to be who who ends up. Uh, categorized as a perpetrator or a victim, and I think it's it's also worth saying that like most women in U.S. prisons, at least like have a history of being physically or sexually abused. So like even the people who like from in like the DV or SA advocacy worlds are like we're identifying them as a survivor and a victim, right? But they're still criminalized and like treated as the perpetrator or like a criminal, uh, like they've like broken a law or whatever. Um, and so that's how the state is treating them. And I think that looking at cases like that, so like one really com or like well-known example in the US was the case of Cyntoia Brown, who was a survivor of child sex trafficking, who killed someone soliciting her for sex when she was 14. And she was tried as an adult and sentenced to life in prison. Um, you know, as like a child who committed this crime, she has now been granted clemency. So she only ended up serving 15 years. But I really think that that is only the case because her case got a lot of attention and me- like media attention and publicity and people put a lot of pressure uh, on uh, the governor of Tennessee to grant her clemency. And so it's really only like in those cases where there's like, some sort of uproar and like public attention that people are able to, you know, otherwise I think she would still be in prison, like for sure.
1: Yeah. And I mean, 15 years is still such a long time, like to have served at war. I just wanted to add that, I guess in the UK, just to say as well, that the exact same thing is true. I don't know the specific statistic, but I do know, I have heard that, you know, the majority of women in, in prisons in the UK are also, um, yeah, survivors of some type of physical or sexual abuse. Um, and I think when I've heard that, you know, it's just so it's so damning. Like it's, it speaks volumes just in of itself to hear that. Like, what does that tell you about what this system is doing?
0: Right. Um, one other example that I just learned about recently um, is this woman, Lisa Montgomery. So the federal government in the US has like just resumed uh, doing federal executions. So like for people who are on death row um, and so there is currently only one woman on federal death row and she has she's had like a date set for her execution later this year. Um, And she, you know, the like crime, the thing that she did, the crime that she committed is like pretty horrific. Right. Like it's a it's a scary and sad thing. Um, But like that is all that is normally mentioned if, if it's being mentioned at all, which like, it's not even like a prominent media story or anything, but, um, she comes from a background of extreme abuse, like was sexually abused as a child, physically abused as a child. She like struggles with like mental illness. Um, yeah, just like had a very like traumatizing childhood. And I think that to leave that out of this story of like painting her as, uh, this like terrible villain who did this terrible thing is like really insulting to people who are survivors of abuse and it's just like not giving her the context that she deserves
1: yeah and it, and it's interesting like to think about who is not isn't given those contexts because you know it's kind of extraordinary to think that people who, I guess in the US there's like plenty of examples of, you know, these kind of mass shootings perpetrated by like white men who will be given like a lot of context for the reasons and the causes and the kind of, you know, life circumstances that may have led to this moment, previous traumas, previous, you know, mental health um, situations, previous educational situations. And I think it's just interesting to hear that like, yeah, it's just interesting to reflect. I guess I'm just wondering about like the forces that are at play as well when somebody like Lisa Montgomery is, is not given um, any of that context.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that um, my my like hunch about what is often happening, you know, Lisa Montgomery is a white woman, but I think that the background that somebody is coming from, like whether their family is wealthy, whether they have resources to like actually like put up a fight. Um, and I think that, you know, our, (laughs) our current government at, at a minimum, uh, is obviously like pretty openly like white supremacist in its ideology. And I, and I think that like, we can only assume that like that type of, uh, what, what policies are normalized and ideologies are normalized, um, by the government is also like at play in, in who gets a second chance or who gets, the benefit of context
1: yeah and i guess it also just it leaves unquestioned like you don't question the de- the use of the death penalty at all in that case right because it's like of course you know this is this inherently evil woman like you know why of course we should kill her you know and i, I guess yeah that just re- remains this kind of absence where we don't question that that at all yeah
0: because i think that that is that is one of the functions that this binary serve, because I, I do think it is very rooted in the way that our criminal legal system operates. And the way that it operates is that the options for people who survive violence is to either like, go to the police and like, pursue a court case and like, try to get that person sent to prison for months or years, um, or nothing. Um, so, so I think that like, it, it, it's kind of the only option that is ever talked about or considered the mo- the majority of the time.
1: That's really interesting because I guess something that just came to my mind as well is like, I mean, you can probably g- give me more insight into this, but I- I've heard that like a lot of times, you know, the perpetrator is also somebody that people know, right? Like as a family member or a partner. And I guess just, I imagine that plays into this as well. Like whether, you know, having th- that binary of options that you just outlined, I mean, you're also dealing with somebody who's a member of like, you know, your family potentially. And, and I, I don't know how that must, you know, that, that puts you in such a difficult position.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think like in the case of sexual assault, I think is like what you're talking about, like people most often know they're the person who assaults them, whether it's an acquaintance or a friend or a family member, I think particularly in those cases when it's, Somebody like close to you, of course, it's like (laughs) devastating to decide whether to pursue that. Um, I think that that is a big disincentive for survivors to come forward about their experiences of abuse, because if they're like afraid that what is going to happen is that their loved one or like somebody who like continues to be a part of their life in some way is going to be like sent to prison. And then like maybe they're going to be blamed by their community or their family um, there are just like a lot of negative consequences that can come from that. Um, and I think on the sort of flip side of that, there's also a reality that like these like, car- the, the like carceral way that we handle harm in our communities isn't just like done through the state, but it's also like something that we do at an interpersonal level. So like sometimes a survivor might be afraid of coming forward about, either intimate partner violence or sexual assault because she's afraid of the way that like a family member is gonna respond. Like I, don't want my, like, I don't want my dad to like show up at my abuser's house and like beat him up or like kill him. And like, what are the consequences of that gonna be? Um, and so I think that the way that we try to respond to harm with more violence, oftentimes is really alienating for the survivor.
1: That's really, yeah. And I, and I think that kind of (laughs) reminds us, I guess, of like how easily lost the actual survivors and like uh, put people who experience harm become in the whole equation, because it's just like, you know, how are we going to deal with the perpetrator or like how are we going to, it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't seem like it centers the needs of people or like kind of listens to like maybe the, the fact that those needs might be quite nuanced and quite complex, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that what is sad about the way that we handle these types of, like, issues, like how we handle harm on a society level is that, like, the the survivor doesn't really, most of the time doesn't get the benefit of being able to, like, figure out what they want, because they're the only options they have are, like, do you want to go to the police or not? Um, and, you know, sometimes survivors are able to find their own form of justice, like, without going through, um, that process, like, whether that's therapy or finding a way to, like, feel safe. But, like, rarely is there an opportunity to, like, have any sort of accountability from the person who caused harm, um, that doesn't involve, like, them potentially going to prison, which, like, yeah, I think you're, you're very right to point out is, like, not what people often want, um, and, it it, it can really make survivors feel like they don't have an option.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess also just what you're saying with like the, the way the state becomes like the main mediator, like in, in these situations, I mean, obviously there's so many things you've already outlined about why that's really problematic, but I was talking, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, with some activists in the US, and um, one woman was pointing out these examples were women who kind of go to domestic violence shelters, um, and then where their abuser uh, has called ICE on them, so like immigration enforcement. And I just I was just thinking about like, you know, what it means for the state to be both the entity that is meant to like mediate like this harm, but at the same time it can just like absolutely amplify that harm. And like, you know, you're in this shelter and then it's this, the state can kind of infringe on the fact, it doesn't matter that you're a victim anymore. You're like your main status is you're an immigrant or you're a refugee. And I think, I don't know, I was just thinking about like, yeah, the state becomes, like, really hard to disentangle from in these situations. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that that is a really good point. Uh, and I think it really, it puts pressure on institutions like nonprofits that work with survivors to, like, figure out how to navigate that in an ethical way. Um, I think that, To the credit of the place that I was working, like that was a situation where, like, if if ICE was like contacting us or like trying to find out if somebody was staying with us, like that is not something we would share. Um, we like did not have any sort of policy of cooperating with ICE, Um, and so people we did have people who were undocumented who would stay with us. Um, But we also were located like quite close to the ICE office. So like that could be a deterrent factor for people. And we also like had a policy of cooperating with the police in in a way that I think at times could be alienating for survivors. Um, And I think that that is sort of, I imagine an issue in a lot of these types of settings um, because there's, a lot of there's a lot of pressure on nonprofits to work with the community and to like, yeah, liaise in whatever ways their funders kind of see fit, um, and that can kind of shape the policies more so more so than what would actually um, be in the best interest of like most survivors.
1: Yeah, that sounds really hard because, yeah, that there's not really like, a, it doesn't sound like there's any space that's really like the ideal. <laughs> you know, a genuinely safe space, I suppose, because everybody's having to, you can't, you know, you can't just like turn your back on the state and and kind of, you know, it's just somewhere out there. It seems like it's always encroaching um, on these spaces. And I wonder as well about like, and I guess it's not the same as domestic violence, but I was thinking about, you know, this question of accountability and, and and mediation. I mean, what happens when, you know, prison officers or immigration enforcement Um, officers are the people who are perpetrating you know violence whether that's sexual or physical or or any other kind on people like that there is no process of accountability there and that just further complicates this question of like victim perpetrator and then state mediator like as these three parties there's just so much Mm -hmm. else going on
0: yeah that's a great question um, because police officers I can't remember the exact statistic but um there is certainly a problem within the community of police officers of like perpetrating intimate partner violence in their own lives, right? And so like, what does that look like when people try to seek support and help? Um, but like, you know, for pretty obvious reasons, like don't feel safe to call the police. It's something we um, I've seen particularly survivors struggle with in rural areas where whether their abuser is just like friends with some cops and like has a good relationship with them and then like they the survivor is kind of already like well they're not going to do anything when they show up to my house so like what's the point like who can I even call um or obviously if their abuser is an officer himself then like that's not going to be a a, a way that people feel safe. I've even heard of like people whose abuser like is a lawyer and like has some sort of like relationship to judges and and all of those things. Depending on like it, it really limits like individual people in those situations um, to like what options they have available to them. And I think that this. Also plays out um, in situations that you know this is a little bit different than like intimate partner violence or sexual assault, but in cases of police violence, right? Like in Louisville, Breonna Taylor is like one of many people who have been murdered by our police department here, Um, and I think that it it just kind of shows the goals and the motivations of the state when we see that like in situations like this where the police have perpetrated harm, right? Like where they've done these like terrible things um, to other people that they like don't face any jail time or any consequences for their actions. So like in the case of Breonna Taylor, the only charges that have been brought so far were against one officer, one out of the three officers that shot at her. Um, And the only charges he has um, that he's facing are three wanton endangerment charges, which are not for shooting her, but are for having bullets go through her neighbor's apartment. So he put three of her neighbors in danger who were not involved in the situation. So people are very upset here that there are no there are no charges related to the fact that she was murdered by the police that any of these officers are facing right now. And even for these like minimal charges that he has, he has so far has spent 30 minutes in jail because he was able to check in, pay his bail, and was immediately released. While there are like people protesting who are spending like close to 24 hours in jail for like being in the streets. Um, and so I think that like that is just one of many examples of the state not actually working to. Serve the interests of victims, right, or survivors, like, yeah, I think it's really disingenuous for the state to position itself as, like, doing what it does to, like, bring justice for survivors because that's clearly only happening when they see fit.
1: Definitely. I think, yeah, that is such a strong example of that um, and that selectivity as well and just, you know, all those questions, who's a victim, who's a perpetrator, like, who and how we want to apply these Rules, um, and I guess it takes us also very neatly into, I guess you know what I tend to move people towards at this point in the podcast is, you know, okay, you've made it very very clear that you know this binary is not very useful. It hides a lot of what's going on, and it doesn't necessarily serve um, people who uh, you know experience harm in all sorts of different ways in the best way. And so, and it maybe is quite an obvious question because I think you have answered it in, in you know in indirect ways already, but. That being the case, you know why does this binary then exist? Why do we kind of have this this idea of like victims of violence, perpetrators of violence? Um, it's overly simplistic, but that means to me surely like something or somebody benefits.
0: I think that the the primary function of this binary is to justify continued state violence and control, um, because carceral punishment is the only form of justice that we really offer to survivors and incarceration is done in the name of survivors um, because we don't we don't ask survivors what they want Um, we pretty much give them this option Um, and I think that that also reinforces the idea that victims are sort of or survivors are sort of like responsible for what happens so like if they could if they come forward it's like okay like You really need to do this because, like, otherwise other women or other people are going to be targeted by this person and are going to be harmed. So, like, the onus is on you to, like, make this happen, Um, which then, like, is is really just the state, like, getting the control that it wants over that case, right? Because they're, like, getting access to evidence and they're getting uh, what they need from that person to, like, pursue their own aims. Um, And then on the flip side, if the survivor is like, I actually don't think that I want to, like, go through the traumatizing process of, like, having, like, going to court multiple times and, like, having to have my story picked apart by an attorney and I don't want that and I don't want this person to be in prison for years, then they're sort of like... It, it, it allows the state to like sort of blame the victim and say like, well, you know, we, we gave you this option and you're not doing it. And so like, you don't, there's like no other option or type of support really given to the survivor at that point.
1: Um, yeah. That's, that's, it, I mean, it really just amplifies the kind of impossibility, I guess, of, of kind of seeking a real sense of justice um, through this. And I think you're right. Like uh, it does justify uh, that continued state violence. And I think also because, because it focuses on the individuals and in, in that way, I guess we're distracted from kind of thinking about, you know, really, why does this violence occur? Like, why is this interpersonal violence occurring? And I think it goes back to what you were saying that, you know, all these kinds of traumas that are so linked to systemic issues, whether that's like poverty, resource deprivation, um, or, you know, racism that has led to kind of those systemic traumas, which obviously result in like interpersonal traumas and the way that, you know, the very intimate things, like the way that your childhood is kind of experienced and the kinds of ways that your parents can be or not be um, there for you. Um, And I think it's just interesting that like this focus um, not only justifies, but also like Helps us just not even see state violence, I guess. Like it's just completely erased from the picture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that is uh, very much like the the binary serving its purpose, right? Is that it is like making it purely about these like individual situations, and it's like sort of purporting to be making it about like justice for the survivor and not looking at the ways that the state is perpetuating harm. Um, and I think that what is really sad to me about the way that this works is that it provides a disincentive for people who have been abusive and caused harm to take accountability for what they've done, right? Because, like, if you're faced with if if what happens when you do that is that like you end up going to prison or um, facing any other sort of legal consequences, then like, why would you why would you admit to doing that? And like, what? What would it mean for you to like be honest about what you've done and there's no space for that conversation to happen to to acknowledge like that the harm has been caused and to like work through why it happened and reach any sort of healing on for either party
1: that's a really good point yeah like there's no it just sounds like a it's a very like dead end situation and and like that's the 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 resolution is just like simply one person like not being able to continue, I guess, their life in any way, which also obviously does impact that other person. So I, th- I so p- apart from the state, I suppose, like, you know, what other, are there other institutions or entities that are like benefiting from or kind of connected to this? Because you obviously, we're talking about the carceral system here and we know that people talk about this as like the prison industrial complex and it's I guess it's not just the state of play here right so do we have an idea of like other people that are maybe you know directly benefiting from this
0: yeah I mean I think that um that nonprofits really are very like deeply entwined in this system as well um and so typically like so like the place that I worked, like worked with survivors um, and we got funding from like various foundations. We got state funding. Um, we had like a lot of wealthy individual donors I gave funding. Um, and so all of those things I think um, have power in like the way that we address these problems. Um, and I, I think that generally it's gonna perpetuate like whatever system the state already has in place um, because nonprofits at least in my experience tend to sort of like defer to whatever their funders want as strategies. And so like, for us, that meant like we have a relationship with the police, like the chief of police was like on our board. We um, didn't work with perpetrators or abusers at all. Like we had no um, nothing that like really addressed the like relationship between those people and, um, And on the other end, there are things like, like something that, uh, someone might be referred to in court would be like the batterers intervention program, um, or, or like anger management or whatever. Like there are these classes sort of specifically targeted at people who like have, have caused harm. Um, and I think that, that like divide between those two things, um, sort of continues to perpetuate, um, this binary. Um, and it also is sort of like regressive, right? Like if we're just sort of conforming to whatever like structure the state has like offered in terms of like what justice means and like how, what options a survivor has, um, then we're not able to like have these larger uh, conversations about like how to address like systemic problems because it is so individualized.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, yeah, I feel like there's actually, that's a really good point because there's so many, there are so many players and also so many players kind of tied to context other than just like providing the best, you know, most like qualitatively useful, uh, you know, justice and accountability strategies for people. And that's tied to all these other forces, um, whether that's like who's making the money or like where the power is. And I guess um, the question that really leads quite naturally from all the problems you've uh, exposed is just like, so what else, you know, like what is the alternative? This clearly is like a failing System, um, it's this this binary is not helpful in any way for us to think about um, ourselves, to think about violence, to think about each other, um, and so beyond like victim and perpetrator as the framework in general for this, um, and and this and everything you've outlined about how you know these these acts of harm and acts of violence are mediated. Are there better ways to think about this? And and please, you know, I'm hoping that there are. And please can you share with us some ideas or thoughts that people have been having around that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I'm certainly not like an expert on transformative justice, but I do think that a transformative justice framework is like a great starting point for how we can start like thinking about and addressing harms in a more productive way. Um, And what what would that
1: mean in a situation like this?
0: um, I think what that would mean is um, basically, like, providing the opportunity for a survivor to identify, like, what justice would actually mean for them and, like, what they actually need to, like, heal from the harm that has been done to them. And it would mean providing an opportunity for the person who caused harm, who caused violence, or uh, was abusive, um, to take accountability for what they've done. Um, And I think that that is not something that is like, you know, that's a hard thing. And I think it's going to take a lot of time. And that's not always going to be something that the person who caused harm is going to be able and willing to do. But I think that that is like a good goal to have, is to like, be able to create spaces where a survivor can actually like, Think through and process like what they need to feel safe, what they would need to either not maybe not even reach forgiveness of the person who harmed them, but just like feel like what has what harm has occurred is like acknowledged and receive reassurances that it's not going to happen in the future, whether to them or to somebody else. And, and also gives the space for the person who has caused harm to to acknowledge what they've done and, um, not be afraid of like being locked in a cage for years of their life because they do that. Um, like, I think that, that that, part has to be sort of taken out of the equation in order for this to function.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, that speaks back to what we were saying earlier about like, You know, a lot of people don't want to see this person necessarily in prison for the rest of their life. And it's, it's like, you know, it's so obvious to say it, but it's just like, (laughs) just you know, centering survivors or, you know, at least kind of like having a system where like the people involved in the violence are actually the center of like the question seems... So intuitive, and yet it's kind of like you know it's made into this thing that we have to like imagine what would this look like if there was like you know a system that did this, and I guess that you know for me that kind of also says that this involves you know just a wider culture change because for us to have this like you know these um i suppose like mediations of transformative justice, then I think at a wider level there has to be like you know just a change understanding in general about how we think about like violence that it's something that has consequences um but not necessarily in the ways that we talk about because I think the only way we talk about consequences is just like you know revenge and like um punishment and I think you know I I was just remembering um I was doing this workshop a while back at a university and one of the uh, I don't know how it came up but somebody a young man he was just like oh, you know, if I ever found out that anybody I know had sexually abused anyone or been violent to any woman, then, you know, I would just like punch him in the face. And I was just like, that's so interesting to hear that because it's this very hypothetical scenario, right? But it's also like the the person who experienced the harm is just completely irrelevant in that scenario. It's all about this kind of like maturistic, you know, enactment of violence on this person who enacted violence. And I just found it a really insightful kind of demonstration of, this wider culture wherein like i think we all want to distance ourselves from perpetrators of harm because it's like showing that we are good like i'm not perpetrator look i would punch perpetrators and like the irony is completely missed in there but i think there's also you know what you were saying like people have to feel that like there are ways we can move forward because i think at the moment it's like it's too west it's so disincentivized and, and we're too afraid i think to think or admit that like we all probably are entangled in this web of like both harm and causing harm and like experiencing harm and i think that's it just requires like such a big shift of like a willingness i guess to to think in that way
0: yeah i think that that is a great point that like people really want to be on the right side uh and that's and so we have sides right um so that people can put them, align themselves with, um, the, the person who has had harm done to them. And yeah, I think that you're totally right. That like, we're, this is a web we are all entangled in and like everybody has caused harm in their life and like will continue to cause harm. Um, and, and I don't say that to say that like all types of harm are equal because obviously that's not the case and that like everything has, uh, there's a different way to address every like particular issue and problem. Um, But I do think that switching to this approach of removing the state from our problems, the problems in our community and our society involves us addressing it as a community. And so that involves like everybody like actually being involved and like being able to acknowledge when they've done harm, being able to like support a person who has been harmed or being able to support a person who has done harm um, I think that that is what we need.
1: Yeah. And I think that contributes so well to, you know, questions I suppose people have around uh, conversations to do with abolition that, you know, this constant like, but what about, you know, the rapists? And I think this this is a really interesting kind of response to that in the sense that, well, hang on, were like those who did experience that previously being supported in any way? And I think what you've just highlighted there is that like, actually, you know, survivors are or people who experience harm are just like let down in every way by the current system. And so surely it's within our reach and our imagination to imagine a system that, as you say, centres the actual people who like need centering. And I think that's, for me, that's like the... The, the biggest shift that I see in what like, you've presented is just like the system that's completely like puts the survivor last and the needs of these people who are really vulnerable. And then in this system where it's kind of like, actually, if, you know, imagine if the, the needs of that person were, came first.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that is what we need in, in the, in terms of like a shift in our thinking in a way, the way that we address um, these types of interpersonal harm Um I don't think that having like a one-size-fits-all solution is ever going to like fit for everybody. Um, and I think that the the example of like what about the rapists is like rapists are very rarely ever incarcerated. <laughs> like it's a it's an incredibly difficult process to actually um, convict a rapist, um, and that is just like another example of like a way that the way that survivors are let down by the current system. So like if not that, what? And I think that that is where we need to really be exploring and trying to figure out what that can look like. Um, and I will say, like, as somebody who is like pretty relatively new to like exploring the world of transformative justice and what that means, I would recommend um, a book called Beyond Survival, um, which is a compilation of essays um, by Ejeris Dixon and Lea Lakshmi Piepna Samarasinha, Um, And it's, like, a very diverse compilation of, like, people involved in transformative justice work in their communities and, like, the ways that it brings a lot of hope um, and also the ways that it's, like, extremely challenging and, like, sometimes doesn't work out quite right, you know? So it's not a perfect solution, but I do think that, like, being able to, like, start imagining and, like, seeing ways of addressing um, things like intimate partner violence and sexual assault in another way is like really crucial.
1: Yeah no that's amazing I mean that was the question I was going to ask as a follow-up so that's you know perfect I'll I'll include the uh, information about that book in the description of the podcast so um, thank you so much I feel like you know everything that you've just raised particularly in that last segment there is something that we can all kind of take into the thinking that we're trying to do about the world that we want to live in. And I I really hope that, you know, other people listening as I have, have kind of felt that this contributes to just thinking, you know, in those more complicated ways, but those ways that really do, I think, speak to like the ways that we need to be thinking and to to imagine the world we really want to see. And, And I think also like, it's already happening right like this is we i think already in our day-to-day lives like we we do practice in very small ways like you know giving people context like giving people nuance like making space for there to be those conversations and you know not in the same context as this necessarily but i think there are practices and there's like actions there that, that we can take into this um thank you so much for being such a perfect guest um i feel like you well and truly broke apart the binary of victim and perpetrators so thank you so much, and uh, we will speak to you again soon. Hopefully on breaking binaries. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through. So shout out to Violence Jack at at Get Violence Jack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host Sahima Manzul Khan. Bye.